Thank you for joining us. We hope that you enjoyed today's service. God is using the ministry of Lakeside to make a difference in many people's lives, and we have heard numerous stories of life change. If God has used the ministry of Lakeside to make a difference in your life, we would love to hear your story. Please email us at amen at lakesidechurch.ca.
the cell phones and our closed doors God only you can save our family And on this rock we'll build And on this rock we'll build The house of our Let me add to Janice, welcome. Good to have all of you here at Lakeside this morning. So uh, good to meet some guests who are here for the first time. Glad that you are here. And for those of you who are watching online, look right into the camera and say, good morning. Glad to have you with us. Same with those of you who are watching in the cafe. We're so glad that you have joined us as we uh, jump into part two of how to crash-proof our lives. And that's what we're going to talk about over the next five weeks. Last week, I started by putting a picture of a car up and asked you to guess what kind of car it is. So we might as well start sort of similar this week. Uh, it's not going to be a car, though. It's going to be a person. How many of you recognize this person? Raise your hand. Yell out his name. What's his first initials? All right, good. Just wanted to make sure you were sharp. There you go. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is a, an educator, a Christian apologist, or a defender of the faith. And he's one of my favorite writers of all time. And uh, he has written some great things like the Chronicles of Narnia that have been made into a number of movies, uh, Mere Christianity, which is one of my favorite books. But he has written dozens and dozens and dozens of books and sold millions and millions of copies. He's a brilliant writer, thinker, and philosopher. One of the most unique books that he ever wrote really wasn't a book. It started out as a, a, a series of newspaper articles that went in a British newspaper once a week. And uh, eventually, as they were collected, I think they started in 1941 sometime in June, and they were finished in November. Papers were different. They published these kind of things in those days. But he compiled this together, and he created a book, and the book is called this, The Screw Tape Letters. Anybody ever read The Screw Tape Letters? Oh, great. Well, you'll really get the opening illustration then this morning. The Screwtape Letters is really about a fictional character. His name is Screwtape, and he's kind of a high-ranking demon, and he has this protege. His name is Wormwood, and the idea of the book is that Screwtape writes to Wormwood, and it's about instructions and guidance and wisdom on how to mess up followers of Jesus in their spiritual journey. That's really what the letters were, and that's what the book is all about. And so what I wanted to do today, because it was written in 1941, it has, you know, British English attached to it, so it has sort of cultural nuances, and, you know, sometimes they spoke a little different back then. What I thought I would do today is take my best shot at writing a screw tape letter as if it was written by screw tape to Wormwood, only it was written in 2015. Now, I promise you, it will not be near as good as C.S. Lewis. He's way smarter and writes way better than I ever will. 
but I wanted to take my shot. So here's what I would say uh, if I was writing. Dear Wormwood, I figured out the best way to wreck the lives of people and they won't even see it coming. Simply get them really busy doing everyday life. Get them busy at work, at home, at play, with friends, so they have few or no margins at all. Keep them living life at the limit. Get them so busy that it might wreck one area of their lives, but they won't see it coming. It will also wreck other areas as well. Get them busy not doing immoral or unethical things, but get them busy doing things that are noble, things that are important, things that need to be done. Create in them this perceived hunger for personal identity and worth. Help them seek that identity and worth in all of the wrong places. Help them to forget that their identity is in Christ, that they have been adopted by God, that they are valued and loved and prized and treasured, that they have been bought with a price. Convince them that there is this invisible ladder of success and convince them that the best life possible is at the top of the ladder. Keep them comparing themselves to others on the ladder and have them compete for a higher spot and climbing is critical to their happiness. Convince them of that. Remind them that it takes a huge amount of time to climb this ladder and sacrifices will be required. Even important things uh, will need to be pushed aside to get to the top of the ladder. But remember, the goal is happiness. Keep them so discontent uh, that they become a slave to our old friend, the monster called more, and fuel that discontentment with all sorts of media. Make them believe that if they just had something different, something more, and something better, then they will be happy. And as they pursue and as they climb, continue to erode the margin in their life. Because when you do that, that will affect them emotionally and physically, spiritually, mentally, and it, could, and it can wreck those areas of their lives. But it will affect the most important area as well, and that is their relationships. The greatest joy in life and the best of life happens in relationships. So if you want to steal their joy and rob them of life and wreck their lives, go in the direction of their family. Keep them so busy that they don't have time for a family. Remove the margin where all the best things in life happen, including the depth of relationship. If you succeed at this, husbands and wives will resent each other because they'll feel neglected because they're partner has more focus on work than on their relationship. Kids will feel like they don't matter, and they will invent new ways to wreck their lives, which can only add to their parents' grief. Making crashing the family a priority, uh, you do that, and you will be able to wreck so many other areas of their life. In fact, I think if you do this well, it could be the downfall of a culture. Sincerely yours, screw tape. And I got to be honest, that was never written by C.S. Lewis, and there is no screw tape in Wormwood. But if there were, I believe Wormwood is living out that instruction today. I think he is working hard because I'm watching families crash and burn at an alarming rate. Really am. I believe that the lack of margin when it comes to time and when it comes to money is the root of most family fractures. Now, people will say, oh, no, it was something else. They were unfaithful. They were, there was an addiction. There was, you know, there was, a, there was something else. Or they could, kids could say, well, no, it was something else. But I really believe that something else flows from a lack of time or from a lack of margin in time, and in finances. And you know, it's challenging today. 
I mean, when you look at your schedule and I look at mine, we face our fair share of demands and responsibilities, don't we? I mean, we have work and we got family, we got social, we got friends, we got professional development, we got courses, leagues, clubs, serving, recreation, rest, you name it, we've got it. And the demands continue to increase, and we've all seen that. And every one of these demands competes for the 168 hours that you have available in any given week. And each of them are competing for the thing that you treasure the most, that you value the most, and that is your time. You know, I read this article, and uh, it was about uh, some researchers who looked at all of the areas of life, work, family, you know, church, play, social, skill development, recreation, rest, all of it, all the demands and responsibilities, and an expert in each one of those areas said, here's how much time you need to spend in order to fully deal with that single area. And then they took all of that and added it up, and the reality is, is that you would have to work for 40 hours a day to get it all done. None of us gets it all done. So in order to make it work, we have to give up something in one area or areas of responsibility in order to fulfill the responsibilities in other areas of responsibility. We've got to give up somewhere to gain somewhere else. What we have to do is, and here's the reality, if you say yes to one thing, one area of life, it means that you have to say no to another thing because we just don't have enough time to do it all. None of us do. None of us do. And if you looked at your responsibilities as kind of a pie and you start dividing the pie up based on the responsibilities, you know, work, family, church, play, social, skill, development, recreation, rest, serving, all the things that you do, and you would allocate time to each piece of pie, so how big or how small they are, some of those pieces would almost be non-existent because you go, I just don't have time to get those done. But I believe that the two biggest pieces of pie that affect all of us when it comes to our time are these two. I think that we have work and family life. These are the two biggies. They occupy most of our time. And when I talk about work, I'm talking about the time you spend at work, the time you spend working when you're not at work, when you're on your cell phone, on your tablet, or on your laptop, when you're doing work wherever you are, when you are going to social events related to work, when you have, uh, if you're um, developing skills or taking further education, that's all part of work. Clubs, leagues, and other connections are all part of work. And so work is a big chunk of our time, if we're really honest. It is a huge chunk of our time. And when I talk about family life, I'm talking about, you know, the relationship you're developing with a spouse and the, the relationship with your kids, I'm talking about taking vacations, I'm talking about all the chores that need to be done, social connections with other families, etc. All the family responsibilities I put under family life. And if we're all honest, those are the two biggies. And you can put a lot of the other things under each one of those. And this is where the biggest tug of war, the biggest wrestling match, the biggest challenge happens for all of us between work and between family life. It's just, it's just the way it is. And, and the, chal- the challenge is, is that you can't satisfy both fully. You just can't. We don't have enough hours in a week to make it happen. And I've watched men and women over the years, over time, choose the demands and the responsibilities over of work. They choose work over their family. Happens all the time. You know how I know? Because I've done it a number of times in the seasons of my life. I'm not proud of it, but I've done it. And if you ask them, they would say, well, it wasn't a problem at first. 
Everybody seemed to understand. Everybody seemed to be okay with it. But then we kind of got immersed in work, and, you know, we, we, we got more money, and we got promotion, and we bought more stuff. Then we had to pay for that stuff, so we had to work more. And, and, and so we kind of got in this trap, but it was on top of that. It wasn't just for money. It was for a personal desire of advancement and promotion that we kept working more. And we kept choosing work over family. And then these subtle cracks began to appear in family life. And we didn't know what to do about it because we're trapped. We got ourselves this way. And we just had to keep working because of the demands. And then things got a little worse. And then a crisis happened. One of our kids is messed up bad in school or, you know, something to do with, you know, so drugs or alcohol or pornography or something. Or we have a spouse that has an affair or they just walk out and say, ah, I just don't love you anymore. And then all of a sudden, family life becomes very, very important in those moments. And when these crashes happen, as I said last week, when something crashes, you can work at putting it back together, but it's never the same as it was before the crash. And on one side, you have feelings of guilt and regret, and on the other side, you have feelings of rejection and and betrayal and anger and resentment and jealousy. And this story plays out way more times than we care to admit in our culture. It really does. And families crash, and spouses are wounded, kids get wrecked, and it bleeds out into the other areas of our lives. And we think the reason it crashed was some other reason. It's because we didn't choose family first. Here's the reality. If you stayed at work to get everything done, if you took every advantage, or you took all advantages of every opportunity, maximize your skills to advance and develop your career, you'd never go home. On the other side, you try to do everything at home. You try to, you know, care for your kids and care for your spouse and get the chores done and all those other demands and responsibilities, you'd never go to work. To solve this problem is not about being better organized. It's not about better time management. It's not about sleeping less. And either side is not demanding too much, and they're not unfair or unreasonable. The problem is, is there's just not enough time to keep the plate spinning, to be all things to all people. You just can't do it. Nobody can. And what's really important is, to be honest, these two things shape our identity. They have the biggest role in shaping our identity. And these two things, how they play out, go a long way to say life is good or life is not good. But you'll never fulfill the demands of both of these rivals. None of us can. And in the beginning, this is not how God wanted it to be. He did not want these to be rivals. He created them to coexist together. In the beginning, I think it looks something like this, that God was to be in the center of human life, that He was to call the shots, that He was to lead, and that He was to guide, that His Word and His ways would have an influence both on work and on family life. God wanted them to coexist together. That was His plan. And He made it so that it could happen. It could happen. The problem is, is that people didn't want this. They wanted to be there. They wanted to be in the center. They wanted to call the shots. They wanted to do it their way. They thought they knew better than God. And so they made a decision to choose something else. They were more loyal to something else than they were to obedience to God. And because of that, that opened the door. That opened the door. And these two no longer coexisted, but they began to compete with one another. And, um, you know, again, we've seen this play out. In Genesis, you see this happen. It says to Adam, he said, because you've listened to your wife, the word, you know, that's not why this is a problem, by the way. It's the second part. You know, 
It's the second part. Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I command you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, because of this choice. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It's going to be hard. Work's going to become hard. He was a farmer. He's saying farming is going to be difficult. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. From dust you are, and to dust you will return. From the beginning of life and the end of life, work is going to be hard. He said there's going to be conflict, and there's going to be harassment, and there's going to be challenges and difficulties in this work deal. But it's not just limited to the work deal, because the, in, in Genesis 3:16 it says this, to the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. It wasn't going to be painful before this, women. It's her fault. With pain, you will give birth to your children and scream at your husband when it's happening. That's right before the dot. <laughs> and your desire will be for your husband. And he's not talking about a positive desire. Your desire will be to kind of run the family, and he will rule over you because his desire is the same as your desire. And this is about introducing conflict into relationships, into the family. And when you have conflict in each of these areas, they, they, they become conflicting to one another. And that which was to coexist is now competing. And because of this reality, we've learned to perfect this over thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And the way God designed this circles is no longer as it was to be. This is what creates the problem. And work more often than we care to admit it becomes the winner of the conflict. So what's the solution? Well, you're going to have to make up a decision. You have to, going to make up, you're going to have to make a decision to choose. That's what you've got to do. You've got to make a decision to choose one of these over the other. You've got to give up in one area to gain something in the other. Andy Stanley in his book, Choosing to Cheat, puts it this way. He says, you have to choose to cheat in one area in order to satisfy the needs of another. If you're going to satisfy work, you've got to cheat your family. If you're going to satisfy your family, you're going to have to cheat at work. But you're going to have to cheat at one or the other. You have to say no to one in order for you to say yes to another. And God's advice would be this. Choose to cheat work side for the sake of your family side. He'd say, choose to cheat work. If you've got to choose to cheat, which you do, choose to cheat work over family life. And we have this great comparative picture of this in the Bible. And, and we saw that, that video clip, which was very powerful. And then we put that, that verse at the end of it. Well, here's this verse again. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone, neither son or daughter, brother or sister, or husband or wife, right? And he's kind of, the genders could be added to this. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? In other words, he's saying, I'm choosing work, and it's not fun. I'm not having fun. He said, it's meaningless. This is a miserable deal. That's the picture when you choose work over family. That's where it gets you, ultimately. That's the extreme. On the other side, in the same passage, the next verses, I think, really kind of reflect the other. I think this is about relationships, and especially family. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend, his spouse, his mom, his dad can help him up. But pity the person who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. I think that's a marriage deal. And her feet are cold, and she puts them on her legs, but it's, it's a marriage deal. 
But how can one keep warm alone, he says? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. I've heard people say, well, it's God and two others, and I've heard that talked about at marriages, but I don't believe that it's just God and a couple. I think this is about people together. When they are together and there's unity, there's this strength. And I think he's talking somewhat about family life. So what picture do you want to be your reality? God knows that the worst crash that will happen in your life is when you choose work over family. Here's what I say. It's a lot more painful to get a new family than it is to get a new job. And it seems like you think this would be obvious. I mean, think of work. It's challenging, difficult, competitive. There's politics. You fight for position, stress, demands. On the family side, there's to be unconditional love and acceptance. Your deepest needs, uh, some of them get met. Your role is appreciated. You give and receive love. You're more open and vulnerable. You say, why wouldn't I pick family life over work life any day? It's because work is where you get your greatest accolades and recognition. It's where you get the greatest rewards that are tangible. It's progress is more measurable, money is made, and identity is more easily defined. And for all those reasons, we choose work. But here's what happens. Here's what happens when you choose work over family. So, this piece of glass, and by the way, there's nobody down the front, and it won't break anyway. But this piece of glass represents your family. And there's, it, there's a fragile nature to families today. And these bricks represent different choices that you make. So, you when, you, when your spouse has to do at home what is your responsibility, and they have to do their responsibility, and they have to do your responsibility, it's a brick put on that glass. And when you miss one of your kids' event at school or some important event because you say, well, there's something more important at work, and you don't show up to those important family things, it's just another brick on the glass. Every time you make a promise and then you break it, it's just another brick on the glass. And every time you say, well, you know what, next time it's going to be different, and next time it's not different, you put another brick on that glass. And you do this over and over and over, and eventually this glass will collapse. It will shatter, and you will never be able to put the pieces back together again. And this is how it happens. I hear the story all the time. They said, man, I... Man, he was so angry, or she was so angry. I was just late. Why did they get so mad? Or, you know, yeah, I missed dinner this week. One night, why is they, everybody so upset? Or, I forgot a birthday or forgot an anniversary. That was, goes without, you know, saying. Or, I missed an event at school or another late night or this or whatever. Why that one thing created all this? It's not because it's one thing. It's accumulative, and we continue to put bricks on the glass over and over again until there's a crash. And when there's a crash, we have all of these pieces, and you can't put them back together again the same way. You just can't. You just can't do it. So the question is, how do we deal with it? Well, I wanted to use a Bible story. Now, you're going to wonder, when I tell you this, it's a fairly unique, but uh, uh, for some of you, it'll be a familiar Bible story. You'll wonder, why did you choose that one, and how is this all going to fit together, and how does this fit family life at all? So you trust me, you hang in there, and we'll get there. Because I want to talk about a story from Daniel chapter 3, and it's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three guys who literally got fired. Da-doom-doom. See, you know, some of you know the story. But for those of you who aren't sure, let me tell you the story. 
There's this king, Nebuchadnezzar. He's an egomaniac, and he wants to have this statue built that looks like him. And so he, he doesn't, you know, make it life-size. He makes it 90 feet high and 9 feet around. It's made of solid gold, just in case you're wondering how important he thought he was. And he assembles the band, and he says, every day when the band plays, I expect everybody in the nation of Babylon to bow down and to worship that statue. And they're ultimately worshiping me because I think I'm God. Well, there are these uh, three Jewish men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And um, they are… Uh, they're, they're, they're Jewish men, and they have, they've done well, and they're enslaved in Babylon, but they've done well, and they've risen up through the ranks, and others are jealous. And they, because they're Jewish and because they believe in the true and living God, they will not and cannot, because it's within the Ten Commandments and they're following that, they can't bow down to any other statue or any idol or any god, and they refuse to do that. Well, the king is kind of angry. He's very angry, and he calls them in, and he likes these guys because I think they've succeeded, and he gives them one more chance and says, maybe you didn't hear the band, but I'm going to play it one more time, and this is your chance. I want you to bow down, and they basically go, you can play the music until tomorrow morning. We're not bowing down. We are not bowing down, and he gets enraged, and he stokes this furnace up this fiery furnace, and it was probably used to smelt the gold to build the statue. And he gets it seven times hotter, and the people throwing these guys in, they're actually burned and killed, and these guys are thrown in the fire simply because they chose. They chose not to give in. They chose not to bow down. And these are the three guys that got threatened to be fired by their boss but they refused on moral and spiritual ground. And as I say, they were fired literally. I think there are four things that we can learn from this story that we can apply to family life. First is this. You got to prioritize what's important. These guys decided that disobeying the visible king was not a choice because they wanted to obey the invisible king who was God. They said, we're not bowing down to this king. We are going to give our loyalty and allegiance to this king. And this is all about priority, and this is all about being uh, loyal. For them, it was about who they'd bow down. For us, it's about choosing what is going to be the main focus. Is it going to be work, or is it going to be family? Who are we going to prioritize? Who are we going to be most loyal to? See, our family want to believe that they are the priority. They really do. They want to think that they're the priority. They want to know that you are loyal to them. And you can use all the words you want. You can say, yes, I'm loyal. Yes, they're a priority. But they don't measure your words. They measure your actions, and they measure the time that you give to them over this other priority. It's all about time here. It's all about time. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they could have said, God, you're a number one priority. We're loyal to you. But to survive in this world, to keep ourselves from getting fired, to keep ourselves from, you know, um, being burnt to a crisp, we, we just bowed down. We didn't really want to do it, but and we're really loyal to you, but we did it anyway. Well, they would, God wouldn't have been their priority, and they wouldn't have been loyal because, not because they did, of what they said, it's because of what they did. And when we have these two competing choices, work and family, who are we choosing? most often. You don't have to get this perfect. You won't. None of us ever will. But who do you choose most often? You know, you can tell your family, you matter, you're valuable, you're treasured, I'm loyal. But your choices are the evidence, and time is the evidence of whether you're loyal and they're a priority or not. When our time is more focused on work, 
Work is a priority, and that's where your loyalty lies. And when you do that, and especially when you say, but you're my priority and you're my loyalty to your family, but you choose work by your time and your actions, it just creates this, re- they feel rejected, and, over, and, and, and they feel over time, they turn that into resentment. And when resentment gets in relationships, it is so hard to sort them out. And if you were to say to your, if someone does ask you, are you loyal to your family? You'd say, yes, I feel loyal to my family. But when you ask your family, they don't measure it by feeling, they measure it by action, and they measure it by time. So it's not what you feel, it's what, how much time you give. That's what is important. And what makes this a huge challenge is the workplace measures loyalty and priority exactly the same way, by time. And when you choose family over the workplace, maybe it's a single event. Maybe it's just one single event where you said, I have this commitment with my family. Oh, this work commitment came up all of a sudden. No, I'm going to say no to this so I can say yes to that. You do that. Not only does it make a difference, but you start pulling bricks off the pile. When I was uh, about 12 years old, I was playing hockey, and I was pretty de- a pretty decent hockey player as a goalie, and uh, I was living in Toronto at the time, and I tried out for this team. It was a rep team at one of the highest league in Toronto, and I made the team, and I was so excited, and I went home, and I was just dancing up and down. I said, Dad, Dad, I made the team, and he said, let me have a look at the schedule. All the games were on Sunday. Now, this is many years ago now, many, many years ago, and my dad went, mm, 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 you are not playing hockey on Sunday, and that took a few days to get over that. And then my dad came home one night and he said, you know what, I found a league and they, they practice on Thursday, Friday night, and the games are on Saturday morning. And, and I said, well, it's not as good a league. But he said, well, it is a league. And the good news is, is, you know, it wasn't as good as I thought, and so at least I made the all-star team at that league. And the team I played on was really good. We had a great team that year. And um, <coughs> we, uh, we made the finals. And my coach said, oh, in the finals, Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock. I went, oh, no. So I went home and I said to my dad, the game's Sunday at 3. And he said, you know what, you, 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 you've been great about this all year. You can go to the game. And I said, but dad, I want you at the game. And I know that if you have to come to the game because you're a pastor and they used to have these services Sunday night at 6 o'clock, that you're going to have to be there. And I remember my dad saying, you know what, I'll get somebody else that Sunday night to look after it. That was huge. And my dad had been busy in those years, you know, in school, doing ministry, my mom working full time. And when he did that, you know what he did? He just pulled a a huge brick off the pile. Because he said, you're my priority. And it was this one event. And I remember it to this day. The second thing that we have to do is we have, to make the, we have to make a decision to choose what the most important thing is. So once we decide it is our family, then we have to choose to say, okay, no matter what, I'm choosing them because they're the most important. We have these verses that said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand. Love this. O king, But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. You know, basically what they said, we've made our choice, whatever happens, happens. We're sticking with our choice, and we're not going to worry about the consequences. For them, they risk their lives. For us, the biggest risk when we choose family over work is that we lose our job. That's the biggest risk. 
And it's not about getting it perfect. It's about doing it more often. It's about choosing family life. And, and it's about, you know, making the decision. And it's making it now. Don't say, well, I can't make it right now. Things got to settle down. I got things to change. I got to find a new job. Give me four, five, six, seven years. Then I'll sort it out. Then I'll do what you say. Don't do that. What you will do to your family, what bricks you'll pile on that glass during those years are not worth it. Make the decision now. Make it now. You know why we don't make the decision? Fear. Here's the deal. We fear the repercussions at work more than we fear the repercussions with our family when we choose work over them. That's what it's all about. We think they'll understand. We've convinced them we're doing it for them. Well, a little bit we are, but not totally. But we figure our company and our boss, they won't understand. And we play this, if, if I don't do what they ask me, then I will. If I don't do what they ask me, that'll lead to a mispromotion. No raise, termination, loss of reputation. And we get this fear of missing out and something could happen. And so we fear work more, and therefore we cheat our family more often. You want to win this challenge? It starts by making a decision. It starts, make a decision. No matter what happens, I'm making this decision. I'm going to choose them. It starts with conviction that they're most important. It starts with a decision to say, I'm going to choose them first. And then that leads to focus. When you have to make a choice between the two, more often, most often, you're going to say, I'm choosing family. I'm choosing family. Promising it'll get better doesn't cut it. Making a choice and following through is what matters. You know, the goal is not about getting fired here or quitting your job. That's not what I'm talking about. The goal is finding you know, some negotiation room, a solution that makes your time in your management of your time at work more manageable. And that takes tact and, gra tact and grace and negotiation, diplomacy, etc. When I was in the marketplace, it was my second career. I have had three. It was my second. And I was in this company for about eight months, and I noticed something happening. The, uh, the boss came in in the morning about 8.30. He was, that's just how, when he came in, and he would stay till 6.30 most nights. What I noticed is most of my peers, when I first started there, they were kind of working until 6.30 or 6.35. He'd go 6.30, they go 6.35. And I think they thought they were impressing him coming in the same time and going home at the same time. I realized that one of the things that was most important for us, and that had been already established as a value in our family, is to have dinner together. And my kids were just little kids at the time. And, and I remember going into my boss and I said, now, there's this little game going on here. People come in when you come in, and they go home five minutes later, and he kind of laughs. said, yeah, I know they're doing it. I said, I can't do that anymore. I'll tell you what. Here's the deal. I'll come in at 7. I'm an early riser. My kids are up earlier than that. I'll come in at 7. I'll work till 5. I'll be home most nights with my family for dinner. That's, that's just the way I got to do it. And I waited to see what he would say. And he said, let's give it a try. See how you do. See how you do. And it was a negotiation. I got to tell you, if you've got a boss or you work for a company that you can't negotiate something where your family is a priority, you need to quit that job and get away from that company. It might take a while, but you need to do it because your company should respect your desire because when, when families put first, you're a better worker. You really are. Third, these next two are small. We need to trust God to fill the gaps. And when I say that, it's, it's, He will fill the gaps in the workplace when you choose to cheat on the family side. It's trusting Him for that. It says, this is what it says, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, 
and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. They're going, hey, if we get thrown in, the God we serve is able, not necessarily will, but he is able, he is able to deal with it. And it's believing that God is able. It's believing that God is able to meet your financial needs if somehow you don't get a promotion or a raise. Can God meet those financial needs? Maybe is do I believe that God is able to provide me with identity, meaning, and purpose in, in where it should be found and not in the workplace, that he can lead me to that? Do I believe that God is able to find me another job where I can have better balance if I was to lose this job? Do I believe that God is able? Do I believe that God is able that I can achieve more in less time, work smarter, work better, get more done, more deals closed? Do I believe that God is able to do that? There's fear in this. I get that. But it's believing that God is able and His way, when we choose His way to put Him first and put family, you know, as the important earthly priority, is believing that God is able to sort it all out and make it all work. Sometimes we have to make strategic changes, but it's sorting it out, believing God will make it all work. Some of you say, well, that's nice. You work at the church. Like, that's really easy. And it's not the same. Well, it might not be. It's not about whether it's easy or it's not whether it's difficult. The question is, do you believe that God can handle it? Do you believe that God is able? Do you believe that? That's what it's all about. See, it's all about, is God able? It indicates the level or the depth of our belief in God. Sometimes we're put to the test. You know that, the, the company story. So I made these changes. And um, yeah, um, I was able to, you know, go home and spend time with my family most nights. And in making those changes, something cool happened. I got promoted in that company, and it was the boom years. And it wasn't just attributed to that decision, but that's a big part of it. There were a lot of other factors that played into it. And it might not always be that positive. Sometimes it would be demotion, termination, or financial setbacks. But it's believing that God is able. It's believing that God rewards obedience because I believe He does, which leads us to the final one. It says this, don't fear the heat. Don't fear the heat. You know, there's going to be pushback, and they got pushback. These guys got pushback. It says this um, in Genesis 24, 25. There's two parts of this. I'll read the, from my Bible here. Genesis 4, 24, 25. It says, uh, <laughs> How about Genesis 3, 24, 25? That'd be better. It says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? They replied, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. You know what he's saying? Hold it. We put three in. What's going on? There's four. There was a fourth person in that fire. I believe it is the pre-incarnate Christ showed up in the fire with these guys It walked through the, with them. He was with them in the middle of the fire, and he led them out of the fire, and it said they're clothed in even smell like smoke. And so they didn't fear the heat. They didn't fear the heat. Now, here's what we want. Here's how we want it. You know what, God? If you could just keep the heat in the furnace from happening, that would even be better. See, our natural tendency is want to avoid the furnace. We want to avoid the heat. And we believe that, you know, God should do that. You know, we've given our lives over to God. We serve Him. We put family first. Now, God, keep us from the heat. But when I look at the stories of people in the Bible, God rarely keeps people from the furnace. No, God joins them in the furnace. He walks with them through the heat, and He brings them out the other side. 
And we wonder, why doesn't God just prevent the furnace? We've made the commitment. He knows our heart. Why do we have to go through the furnace? Because I think it's when the, in the furnace, when the heat is on, where God does some of His best work. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, he talks about that we're being refined by the trials we go through, like gold in a fire where all this impurity is being burned out of us. There's purpose in the fire. God promises to be with us, to walk through it, to deliver, deliver us on the other side, but He doesn't promise to take the fire away. Now, there's something interesting in this story. These guys got fired, and then what happened? Then the king promoted them. They got fired and then promoted. Pretty good deal. They got promoted. It was an upgrade. Now, when you make this choice, it might not mean a promotion or an upgrade. It might not. But I'm going to tell you, it may save your family from a crash. It make your marriage stronger. It will help you make wiser choices. It'll keep your kids from crashing their lives. You'll be around for the most important moments and share in them. I can tell you, that's way more important than money or promotion. It really is. God might show up. Might not, but He might. Sometimes He does. A better job, maybe a promotion, maybe more money, maybe a, a job where it fits your skills and abilities far better and you can work less time at it. But it's time to, for some of us today to make a conclusion. Come to a conclusion. Who's most important in our lives? Honestly, who is most important? And who do you make second? It's time to choose. To choose. And some of you know me you say, well, you know what? In order to choose, I may have to downscale my lifestyle in order to make this choice. That's okay. Do that for the sake of your family. Here's what I know. No one gets to the end of their lives, and they're lying on their deathbed, and they go, oh, man, I wish I'd worked harder. I wish I'd worked more, made more deals, did more stuff in the workplace, the marketplace, left my mark. No one ever says that. No. What some people do say is they get to the end, and they have so many regrets, wishing, I wish I'd spent more time with the people I love, the people that matter the most. And I'm asking you to do something that is not easy. It is hard. It is difficult. There's all sorts of fear. You may think it's impossible, but if you make the choice when it's all said and done, you choose to cheat work for the sake of your family, you're taking bricks off that glass, and you're keeping one of the most important things, the most important thing next to your relationship with God, you're keeping it intact. More often, you're keeping a crash from happening. And nothing is better than that, because if it crashes, you can never put those pieces back together again. And it ultimately comes down to this. Who's in the center of the circle? And whoever you put, do you believe they are able to handle whatever happens? See, if you put God in the center, it's believing that God is able and that He will be with you through it all. It's a huge choice. But at the end of the day, it's the right choice. And sometimes the right choice is not always the easy one. It's just the right one. And God rewards us when we make the right choice. Let's pray together. Father God, I, I, I just find this message hard because I know for me there's times I could just put, for all sorts of reasons, the work I do, the ministry I have ahead of everything else. And so, Lord, just keep pushing me in the right direction on this made strides over the last while. I pray that you'll help men and women here make that choice for the sake of their family, for the sake of their family, because nothing is more important than family. So not only may we listen to good information,
that comes from you, but may we make wise choices as a result of it. Give us the courage to choose today to do the right thing. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this message. To hear it again or other messages, please visit us at lakesidechurch.ca.